0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start off tonight with one of those stories that points to both the difficulty and credibility of science. And so earlier this month, archaeologists from the Aberdeenshire, um, or I should say Aberdeenshire uh, Council and the Historic Environment Scotland Agency, announced the discovery of a new Neolithic stone circle at a remote farm west of Aberdeen, which they believed to be between 3,500 and 4,500 years old. Now, this area actually boasts some 90 stone circles uh, of a unique kind. They each have a large recumbent stone lying on its side, along with the other stones that are in the circle. So it's almost kind of like one of the lintel stones from Um, stonehenge but it's basically sitting on the ground uh, almost like a bench and so uh, these kinds of circles are actually found almost exclusively in this part uh, in the northeast of Scotland and are pretty much non-existent elsewhere. Now some locals actually had sort of a vague remembrance of a stone circle out that way but the area is far from the main road and so it doesn't really, uh, surprise anyone that it hadn't really been discovered before this. Sadly, however, uh, the story has what could be considered if you, uh, so chose to be a rather embarrassing, uh, finish. And so on Monday, uh, Aberdeenshire Council archaeologist Neil Ackerman announced on Twitter that further research had revealed that the circle was no more uh, than around 20 years old instead of the thousands of years old previously thought. He tweeted, uh, (laughs) it's a great tweet, If you are having an awkward day at work, at least you're not that guy who identified a new prehistoric stone circle to the press and now turns out to be about 20 years old. (laughs) Now, the archaeologist, again, had already been a bit suspicious because, um, or had been a bit suspicious because... uh, that it wasn't indicated on any local maps, any archaeological surveys, and that seemed a little bit weird. But again, because it was again, sort of off the beaten path, it didn't really raise any alarms. The other thing was that it seemed to be fairly small. Uh, but again, with stone circles, there's a lot of variety. Uh, some are much bigger than others, and so again, this wasn't really seen as a huge red flag. Luckily for uh, (laughs) the archaeologist who didn't end up having to do an actual, you know, excavation here to figure this out, uh, a farmer who had previously owned the property actually came forward and admitted that he had actually created it himself back in the 1990s. There are various replicas around, but they are usually not as good as this, Ackerman said. The guy who built this really knew what he was doing. It is quite interesting that in building a stone circle, he did not just put a bunch of stones in a circle. He had very closely copied a regional monument type. Now, there's no suggestion that the farmer did this to fool anyone. He seems to genuinely have never told anyone about it, which is actually why it wasn't on local records. And Ackerman noted that the area where the circle is has a lovely view of the surrounding countryside. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I think that it was just a farmer on his own land decided to make this really cool little homage to real stone circles uh, found in this area in a lovely location. And so, unfortunately, you know, that did cause a little bit of a kerfuffle, but I think it's actually a great story about good science in the end because everybody came forward very quickly and everything was cleared up in a really easy and, um, you know, a very clean manner. Ackerman reflected that it shows the human side of the job a little bit. It is very difficult to date these things because there is no way to date when a stone was put in the ground. As for the embarrassment of the announcement... I think it is actually good archaeological practice, the way it has been done, he noted. It is just a shame that it all that has all very quickly completely changed as it were. But still, it is very interesting. (laughs) Uh, So let's step back for a moment and talk about how one actually does date a stone circle. It turns out that, as he noted, it's kind of hard. You can't use radiocarbon dating on stone because, well, most stones don't contain carbon uh, unless it's an inclusion from an actual living animal. And that doesn't usually happen. Usually by the time uh, you get to rock form, all of the carbon has been replaced with minerals. So there's just no carbon in rocks to really find Additionally, other radiometric dating techniques will only tell you how old the stone itself is, not when it ended up in a circle. Materials left around circles can be hard to come by and often are from periods after the stones were actually put into place. Because of course, these were places that people came back to over and over again to do rituals and other um, meetings and things like that. And so it's really hard. Sometimes what you have to do is you have to get lucky at one site where there's actually materials, and then uh, the, those sites that have yielded up materials, you then have to compare other sites to those to kind of get a guesstimate that they are from similar time periods. Now there is actually a new method that has been developed but it requires digging out at least one of the stones. In quartz or silica, or in quartz or silica-rich deposits, dating using optically stimulated luminescence uh, can be used to determine when such deposits of quartz were last exposed to sunlight. And so the way that this happens is that because of the crystal nature of these sediments, when buried, they trap a, per- a certain percentage of electrons freed from ionizing radiation in the surrounding sediment. So basically, um, most soil has kind of a background amount of radiation. It's not anything to harm anyone generally, but there is radiation pretty much everywhere. Um, Mostly it's background radiation. um, And so even though it is a very small amount, it still does have an effect on things, especially things that have been sitting there for a very long time. And so what happens is that the amount of time can be calculated by determining how much radiation has affected the sample versus the dosage rate of the surrounding sediment. So basically, how many electrons would you expect per, you know, century, and then count up how many there are, and then you can do that. Now, of course, this does require excavating a post hole, which is usually frowned upon. Usually, people don't want you to be digging up stones out of stone circles. So again, dating can be hard. (laughs) And of course, it's important for the researchers to be upfront about that, which is why we see stories like this. So personally, I think it's a very cool story. Even though we didn't add another uh, Neolithic stone circle, I learned about recumbent stone circles. I had never heard of them before as a specific separate kind of stone circle in the uh, UK. So I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> of course, I'm not the archaeologist who had to, you know, uh, talk about the fact that they were wrong. So anyways... Let's move much further back in time now to discuss a rather cool find by a gemologist. Now, I'm actually not sure how far back because no one is at the moment. It might be very, very old. It might be less old, but um, it definitely takes time to become a gem. So uh, Brian Berger, who is a gemologist, wrote a story this week detailing his purchase of an opal with both a rare coloration and also with what seems to be an intact insect inclusion. Now, due to this fact, researchers suspect that the opal might actually be opalized amber. Some researchers weren't sure it was possible, Berger says. Now we know it's possible. Is it likely? Extremely unlikely. The specimen is currently being examined and the insect has not yet been identified, but given the high state of preservation, uh, from what we can tell, this is likely to become a fairly important find. It has been certified by the Gemological Institute of America. And so not only is it just a cool find uh, to talk about and to uh imagine, but I also actually wanted to take a minute to talk about the process of opalization because it's really weird and neat. And so reading about this uh, insect, I thought, "Oh, it's really interesting. Um, It's a really interesting thing to think about of how does something become an opal? uh, Because opalization happens to other things. It just doesn't, you don't just have gem opals. There are actually things like bones and uh, shells and stuff that become opalized. So in much of the world, opal is actually formed from volcanic fluids. But in Australia, where much of the world's precious opals actually originate, opalization is thought to have sedimentary origins. So again, opalization of wood, shell, bones and teeth are all possible. In fact, researchers recently reported on a partial dinosaur skeleton from Australia that had been opalized. And so opalization occurs when the material is saturated in opal forming fluids, which replace the existing materials and then solidify. And so this can happen either quickly or over a long period of time the quicker it happens, the less detail is preserved. So if you have something that opalizes over a long period of time, you might get a lot of fine detail that is actually preserved in the opal. But if it happens quickly, then you're just going to get kind of the bare outlines. And this is a similar process to that of basically how all fossils are made uh, but for instance especially the process that replaces uh, ammonite remains with hematite uh, so if you've ever seen a ammonite fossil you almost certainly have because ammonites are just you know they were so insanely abundant on the earth at one point it is just It's kind of crazy to think that they, you know, actually did eventually go extinct because there were so many of them. Um, But, you know, they're usually in this sort of dark gray or black mineral. And so that is hematite. And so what would have happened is that after the insect had already been trapped in resin uh, from a tree, which is what ends up hardening into amber, then that amber would have also gone through a second transformation into an opal. Now, opals are actually composed of spheres of silicon dioxide and water that have been combined during chemical processes. Ryan McKellar, Curator of Invertebrate Paleontology at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum in Canada, notes that it is a pretty neat find and a bit puzzling. Having only the blog post from Berger, he notes that it definitely looks like an insect inclusion And he also said that he actually had seen a comparable specimen in Canada, where a piece of wood was partially embedded in resin and partially exposed. The embedded part was preserved in the amber while the exposed parts were petrified with silica, replacing the organic matter. Now, Berger does plan on donating the specimen to a museum, so hopefully there will be updates on exactly what is going on with it, Uh, and I will definitely circle back if I hear more. All right, so let's move a bit forward in time, most likely uh, towards the Bronze Age. And so actually, the Bronze Age is when those uh, stone circles were also created. So we're kind of going back to the, stu- to the Bronze Age, uh, at least the real ones. <laughs> and so uh, researchers have found the first real proof that ancient Europeans used weapons to hunt mammoths. Now, this is actually pretty impressive. Uh because it, again, is the first time we've actually gotten real hard evidence in Europe. Now, we knew that they had hunted mammoths because, well, we found bones with obvious signs of butchery. However, it was unclear how they had been initially killed using weapons or by possibly chasing them into pits or over cliffs, or even if they were simply scavenged. But now... We finally have a smoking gun—the first evidence of how these animals were hunted. Were hunted, uh, Piotr uh, Wojtel, an ar- archaeozoologist at the Institute of Systematics and Evolution of Animals at the Poland Ac- Poland Academy of Sciences in Krakow. Uh, that is a mouthful. <laughs> uh, told Science in Poland which is a site run by the Ministry of Science and Higher Education in Poland, obviously. Um, And so this specimen, uh, the specimen that seals the evidence, was actually initially collected in 2002, uh, a piece of rib with a fragment of the flint tip of a spear point. And so, of course, I've talked about this before. A lot of times this happens where, uh, you know, people go out and they do collecting and then all that collection basically gets put into uh very nice uh you know neat boxes that then get put on a shelf somewhere (laughs) until people have time to go back and actually look at them and find out what is really going on there and so uh This site was actually so rich in remains that it really did take a fair amount of time to basically get around to this particular piece of bone. The site in Krakow uh, contains the remains of at least 110 mammoths that lived between 30,000 and 25,000 years ago. Among tens of thousands of bones. During a detailed analysis of the remains, I came across a damaged mammoth ring, uh, Vogel explained. It turned out that a fragment of a flint arrowhead was stuck in it. Now, it was most likely broken off when the hunter drove a spear into the animal. The spear was certainly thrown at the mammoth from a distance, as evidenced by the force with which it stuck into the animal the blade had to pierce two centimeter thick skin and an eight centimeter thick layer of fat to finally reach the bone. Um, and so that's about an inch of uh, thickness. Um, or I should say, um, yeah, about about almost an inch, a little less than an inch. Um, 0.74 to be exact. <laughs> and uh, so... While this one blow probably didn't kill the animal, uh, there were probably other hunters who were also working with the, the uh, owner of the spear. And, you know, that's a a big problem with, you know, skeletal remains is that. What usually kills a large animal like that is probably going to be soft tissue uh, damage. So there would have probably been uh, other spears that actually pierced the soft tissue. And that is probably what ultimately killed the animal. But of course, you don't find that when you're looking at a skeleton. Now, we actually had uh, found weapon remains in other um, in- Mammoths, but those had been found in Siberia. And so this was the first proof of such hunting in Europe. Because, of course, the thing about Siberia is that there's just, you basically, it almost feels sometimes like you could just like walk every five feet and they'll just, you'll just stumble over a mammoth carcass. Um, It's not actually like that, but sometimes it feels like that because there's just so many that have been recovered from Siberia from the permafrost. And so, of course, you would have found them there first because there's so many of them. Um, Now, it's still unclear just what ratio of climate change versus hunting ultimately led to the extinction of the mammoths. But during this period, the hunting definitely wouldn't have been enough to put pressure on the population. uh, Because we know that mammoths didn't go extinct in Europe for at least another 10,000 years. And what's crazy is that, in fact, mammoths didn't actually go extinct until just around 4,000 years ago, when the last remaining population on Wrangell Island, off the coast of northeastern Russia, disappeared. And so, yeah, they actually, that was something that people didn't realize until, um, I'm not sure exactly. I think that it's only certainly in my lifetime that people were like, oh, wow, they were here until very recently, actually. Okay, so let's actually talk about Spears for a minute, uh, because there was also a new paper in Nature Scientific Reports uh, by Ann uh, Annamike Milks and Matt Pope of the Institute of Archaeology at the University of at the University College London, uh, with help from David Parker of Nordic Sports Limited, also in the UK. And so it talks about the development of thrown spears and basically about the idea of exactly how they could have been used, how uh, accurate they would have been, things like that. Now, the use of hand thrown spears developed at some point in the Pleistocene, uh, and it's definitely considered a milestone of human evolution. But the evolution from thrust spears to thrown spears and then to more complex, true projectiles using spear throwers or with bows and arrows isn't actually very well documented. It's been argued that it's not until the development of spear throwers uh, that killing at a distance could actually be achieved. Evidence-based debates have largely depended on hominid skeletal evidence and experiments performed on replicas, but these have often involved inexperienced throwers and or the wrong kind of projectiles, according to the paper. Now, the evidence from skeletal remains is really at best incomplete uh, due to the limited availability of hominid remains to study. Not only that, there is actually debate in certain circles about just how easy it is or hard to tell whether or not a skeletal, uh, whether or not someone used a spear and was regularly, you know, either uh, using it to thrust or using it to throw, whether that wear and tear is easily seen in skeletal remains. Um, and so the earliest spear recovered is a fragment from around 400,000 uh, before present from Clacton-on-Sea in the UK. And it was crafted out of yew. The site of shonen Shoningen in Germany, which dates to around 300,000 uh, before the present, has yielded at least 10 complete or near complete spears, and these were mostly made of spruce. Now, the authors challenged the traditional idea that simple thrown spears can only be accurate any mean distance of five to 10 meters. They pointed out that some extant groups of traditional peoples can throw spears as much as 50 meters. The authors rejected the mean distance calculation of 5 to 10 meters because it compared peoples with, di- with very different habits, including frequency of use, type of prey, and environment. And so basically, if you only are throwing them every once in a while, you're not going to do as well as someone who does it all the time. And so... The researchers asked six male athletes trained in the javelin throw to throw replicas of what's called the Shoningen Spear 2 uh, at various dins- distances. So they were basically each given 20 throws and 102 throws overall were aimed at various target distances with 12 uh, just being for maximum distance. Now, of the 102 throws, only 25% actually managed to hit the target with a descending curve um, for increased distance, which means the further out you went, the less accuracy there was. Interestingly, when the target... Uh, hay bales were on the ground horizontally, only 17% of throws hit at 10 meters, while 33% hit when the bale was turned vertically, giving a higher target for the throw, which means that it was probably easier to uh, aim at larger animals rather than smaller. Now, it's important to note that javelin throws are actually only for distance and not accuracy in general. So the participants weren't actually previously skilled at hitting specific targets. Uh, And so overall, those with the most experience had the best rates of hits, Uh, rather unsurprisingly. um, The researchers found that the kinetic energy and momentum values were sufficient to hunt large prey. Much of the data suggested that skill and fitness played a large role, which might in turn have limited the amount of hunters a group could deploy. The researchers wrote that, The results imply that robust, highly trained, and habitual throwers could throw spears with more power and at least twice as far as has been widely argued for in the literature. The extension to a 20 meter accuracy limit from this experiment implies greater flexibility in hunting strategies than the previous distance estimates. The larger ethnographic distances discussed would put hand-thrown spears on par with spear throwers. They then concluded that we can theorize that only hominids that combined relatively large brains with robust physiques could have employed them as part of a successful subsistence strategy. Um, So uh, one of the people, one of the uh, hominids that they suggest were using them were uh, Neanderthals as well as humans. And so, yeah, very interesting. Interesting. And so it is time to take a break. So we will come back and we will talk about another ancient hunting uh, story. This one about people and dogs. So hang on for just a moment and we will be back after these messages.
1: Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocketship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocketship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation, up to 1 drink a day for women or 2 drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdcgovernor signs.
0: Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S.
1: Drum and Bass with DJ Five is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio WXOJLP or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Five 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com.
0: Northampton Winter Farmers Market is open every Saturday at the Senior Center on Conn Street. Over 20 vendors offering fresh local produce, dairy, prepared foods, good hot coffee, and more. Northampton Winter Farmers Market, Saturdays 9 till 2 at the Senior Center. For more information, visit NorthamptonWinterMarket.com. See you there. Okay, we are back. Uh, I do just want to note that Nerd Night is uh, going to be coming up on February 11th, and it will be two talks. Uh, The first is called Et Tu Brute? Uh, Intuitive User Design Meets Brutalism. And uh, so that's basically gonna be about uh, web design. And so that is gonna be with Sage Shea, who's a digital content strategist at Mount Holyoke and a freelance marketer and wedding photographer. Um, and so, yeah, he is interested in working. He tends to work with local businesses in the Valley, uh, especially with business owners who face considerable intersectional barriers. So that sounds interesting. And then, uh, something that I know some of my friends will be very interested in, uh, five fascinating fungi found fruiting in our forests uh, so yeah a talk about mushrooms <laughs> uh, and so it will be a local wild mushroom expert uh, I'm not a fan of mushrooms i I take I take that back I'm a fan of photographing uh, mushrooms I think mushrooms are really interesting to look at and to take photos of but I'm not really a fan of eating them. Um, but I still think it would be a really interesting, uh, talk to listen to. So anyways, that is coming up on February 11th and it is at the World War II Club, the Deuce, uh, at 7 PM. All right. So let's get back to our talk this evening. Uh, and so, yeah, there is a new discovery, further enlightening archaeologists about the relationship between ancient peoples and dogs. Now, we know that dogs became a part of human culture around 14,000 years ago, but it's still a little unclear whether we adopted them or, like cats, uh, they adopted us. <laughs> and so a new, found, a new find in what is now Northeast Jordan from an 11,500-year-old settlement suggests that dogs were definitely helping out our ancestors by at least that point. Researchers from the University of Copenhagen and University College London suggest that dogs may have been valued by humans for their tracking and hunting abilities. The team studied animal bones from the settlement of Shubaqua 6 and found something interesting. The study of the large assemblage of animal bones from Shubaikwa 6 I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, Revealed a large proportion of bones with unmistakable signs of having passed through the digestive tract of another animal. These bones are so large that they cannot have been swallowed by humans, but must have been digested by dogs, explains zooarchaeologist and the study's lead author, Lisa Yeomans. Now the site was a the site was in year-round habitation, which is important because that means the dogs had to have been part of the human's community rather than visiting when the settlement was abandoned. The dogs were not kept at the fringes of the settlement, settlement but must have been closely integrated into all aspects of day-to-day life and allowed to freely roam around the settlement, feeding on discarded bones and defecating in and around the site, yeom- <laughs> notes Yeoman. Now, while most research has centered on the ability of dogs to aid in the hunting of large game during this period, the researchers actually saw a distinctive change in the quantity of remains of hares associated with the introduction of dogs to the area. The use of dogs for hunting smaller, fast prey, such as hares and foxes, perhaps driving them into enclosures, could provide an explanation that is in line with the evidence we have gathered. The long history of dog use to hunt both small as well as larger prey in the region is well known, and it would be strange not to consider hunting aided by dogs as a likely explanation for the sudden abundance of smaller prey in the archaeological record. The shift may also be associated with a change in hunting techniques from a method such as netting that saw an unselective portion of the hare population captured to a selective method of hunting in which individual animals were targeted. This could have been achieved by dogs, they note in the paper. (laughs) Um, A bit of a long quote, but I thought it was very interesting. Okay, so yeah. That is a really interesting idea that, unlike what we normally think of with dogs kind of helping with larger prey to kind of keep them, um, you know, corralled so that they could be taken down, uh, this was much more about uh, small game hunting, which makes sense in that area because I think even at that time, there was probably much more small game than there was large game that was really uh, feasible to attack. Okay, let us switch gears completely now um, from anthropology and archaeology, and let us leave this uh, earthly sphere and move out into, well, at least the local solar system. (laughs) And so I do want to talk about the moon first. Now, sadly, as I had feared, we were not able to see the eclipse for ourselves due to the dismal weather. (sighs) However, those who could see it were able to see an extraordinary event. It is the first known sighting of a meteorite impact during an eclipse. Now, other impacts have been filmed, obviously. We've been watching the moon for a long time, but this was the first during an eclipse, now, uh, as such, astronomers had actually first started to systematically watch for such impact flashes back in nineteen ninety seven when a program that became uh, Midas or Moon impacts detection and analysis system uh, came into fruition and so this is a uh, this is a program that's been conducted by the University of Huelva in Spain and the Institute of Astrophysics of Andalusia. And so Jose Maria uh, Mediedo of the University of of Huelva confirmed that what many had actually thought they had seen during the eclipse, which was a brief tiny flash of a yellow-white speck on the top left quadrant of the lunar surface was indeed a meteorite impact. In fact, um, Mediedo and his colleagues had been actually hoping to observe just such an event for over 10 years. We monitor the nocturnal regions of the moon to identify impact flashes. In this way, these flashes are well contrasted against the darker background, he explained. So we usually monitor the moon about five days after the new moon and around five days before the new moon. We also monitor during lunar eclipses, since during these eclipses, the lunar ground is dark. So basically, uh, if you think about it, if you look at the moon when it's full, it's so bright that you'd never see anything hitting it. Uh, And so basically, they don't waste their time looking at it when it's full, they only do it when it's uh, during times when it's dark. Now, he was actually really hoping that this would be the opportunity to see an impact. So he actually uh, had his team double the number of telescopes observing the moon uh, from four to eight. And this was actually a pretty big deal, apparently. In total, I spent almost two days without sleeping, including the monitoring time during the eclipse, he told Gizmodo. But I made the extra effort to prepare the new telescopes because I had the feeling that this time would be the time, and I did not want to miss an impact flash. One instrument had a technical issue and failed. I was exhausted when the eclipse ended, but when the automatic detection software notified me of a bright flash, I jumped out of my chair. It was a very exciting moment because I knew such a thing had never been recorded before. So it's very exciting. Uh, And so after the eclipse, again, the data was analyzed by software that confirmed that the flash was indeed an impact. Uh, Luckily, the flash was quite bright and the moon was rather dark. Uh, And so, you know, that's how they were able to detect it. Now, the analysis isn't complete, but um, he believes that the rock was probably around the size of a football and around uh, 10 kilograms or 22 pounds. The combination of a darkened surface and a lot of people watching made it much more likely that the flash of impact was seen. And it reminds us that the solar system is still a very dynamic place, says Robert Massey at the Royal Astronomical Society. Uh, Just making a general remark about how cool this is. Now, by studying such impacts, we can actually better determine the statistics about the rate of lunar impacts and therefore the rate at which the Earth is also hit by such meteorites. Now, in a sort of related story, a chunk of rock brought back from the lunar surface in 1971 by Apollo astronauts may just contain one of the, one of the Earth's oldest examples of rock. And so the fragment of rock is embedded in a larger piece of moon crust. It was likely ejected from the earth during the impact around 4 billion years ago. It is an, Extraordinary find that helps paint a better picture of early Earth and the bombardment that modified our planet during the dawn of life. Study co-author David Kring, a university's Space Research Association scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute in Houston, uh, said in a statement. The research team was led actually by Jeremy Bellucci of the Swedish Museum of Natural History and Alexander Nemchen of the Swedish Museum and Curtin University in Australia. So they were tasked with analyzing lunar samples from the Apollo 14 mission, which explored the moon in February of 1971. The tiny fragment, just 0.8 ounces or two grams, is composed of quartz, feldspar, and zircon, elements that are rare on the moon but common on Earth. Furthermore, the chemical analysis of the sample showed that they most likely formed in an oxidized environment in a temperature range consistent with those found near this, in the near subsurface of the early Earth, around 12 miles below the surface. Now, the fragment most likely made its way to the moon, uh, which was three times closer to the Earth uh, in that period. Uh, Basically, you know, it was hit off of the Earth and ended up on the moon. It was then partially melted and most likely buried by a different impact around 3.9 billion years ago, and then (laughs) excavated by yet another impact around 26 million years ago. And that impact created the 1,115-foot-wide Cone Crater, which is where Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell collected samples. Now, the researchers do note that it is theoretically possible the rock originated on the moon, but conditions on the early moon would have to have been quite different than what is currently thought for this to have happened it's much more likely that the rock was ejected from the earth and ended up on the moon. All right, so let's stick with space for a while. And so it turns out that new research suggests that that impact, or the impact I should say, that created the moon uh, may also have allowed life on earth to be possible. So uh, part of the big thing about this is that, you know, there is the pretty widely accepted uh, theory that a Mars-sized planet basically crashed into the early Earth, uh, took a sort of skim off of it, and all of that uh, debris that was kind of scraped off of the early Earth Became the moon, and that's why the moon has certain features that are very close to Earth, but is also different. And so, one of the study's co authors, uh, Rajdeep Dasgupta, the principal investigator on a NASA funded effort called Clever Planets, says From the study of primitive meteorites, scientists have long known that Earth and other rocky planets in the inner solar system are volatile, depleted. But the timing and mechanism of volatile delivery has been hotly debated. Ours is the first scenario that can explain the timing and delivering, and delivery in a way that is consistent with all of the geochemical evidence. And so Clever Planets explores the process by which rocky planets might acquire the life essential elements in order to better understand the origins of life on Earth and, of course, possibly in the greater universe. Dasgupta explains that... This study suggests that a rocky Earth-like planet gets more chances to acquire life-essential elements if it forms and grows from giant impacts with planets that have sampled different building blocks, perhaps from different parts of a protoplanetary disk. This removes some boundary conditions. It shows that life-essential volatiles can arrive at the surface layer of a planet even if they were produced on planetary bodies that underwent core formation under very different conditions. And so uh, the way that they determined this was doing work in a lab uh, that involves high pressure and high temperatures. Uh, It's basically a geophysics lab equipped to study geothermal reactions deep within the earth. Uh, And so uh, they did a bunch of experiments and lead author and graduate student Veer Gruel uh, wanted to test the hypothesis that a sulfur rich object impacted the earth. This theory is supported by evidence that carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur are abundant in all parts of the Earth except for the core. The core doesn't interact with the rest of the Earth, but everything above it, the mantle, the crust, the hydrosphere, and the atmosphere are all connected, material cycles between them, he noted. Now, a long-standing idea of how the Earth got its volatiles, uh, which include things like oxygen and nitrogen, basically um, elements that are very easily combined with others. That's what they mean by volatile, Uh, unlike things like the noble gases, which are very inert. Um, And so... uh, the sort of standing theory for a long time was called the late veneer theory. And that suggested that meteorites rich in these volatiles called carbonaceous uh, chondrites which is a great name. I always love carbonaceous chondrites. I think that should definitely be an indie band. Anyways, uh, that they bombarded the Earth after Earth's core had formed. However, there's a big problem with this. The ratio of carbon to nitrogen is completely different. In the bulk silicate Earth, which is what geologists refer to the non-core elements of the Earth as, basically anything that's not core, uh, has a 40 parts carbon to nitrogen ratio, while these meteorites have a 20 to 1 ratio. So when the team developed a model of a sulfur-rich planetary core, they found, after running about a billion simulations (laughs) and comparing all of them to known conditions on the Earth, that such a uh, planet was the best suggestion for how we arrived at the proper ratios we see on Earth today. Gruel concluded that What we found is that all the evidence, isotopic signatures, the carbon-nitrogen ratio, and the overall amounts of carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur in the bulk silicate Earth are consistent with a moon-forming impact involving a volatile-bearing, Mars-sized planet with a sulfur-rich core. So there you have it. (laughs) Okay, so let us return now to a perennial favorite around here which is, of course, the hypothesized planet nine. So once again, we turn back to that saga. So we know that something is making some objects in our solar system have odd elliptical orbits, but we just haven't figured out what that something is yet. Um, And so many have suggested uh, that an as-unyet-discovered planet is orbiting in the far reaches of the solar system. Now, this isn't as weird as it sounds. And as I always like to say, this is not planet Nibiru. Uh, This is actually something that could possibly be out there. Um, But the problem is, is that it is literally like looking for a needle in a haystack if we don't know where it is, because it is... Not necessarily because it's so far away, it wouldn't be uh, illuminated by the sun, which means we basically can't see it in any way that is easy to detect. And so, if it is out there, it's going to be real dark, and space is real dark. <laughs> and so, the idea of being able to find a planet that's out there. Um, by looking in just the right place, that's really hard, because we don't have, uh, you know, if you think about it, the telescopes we have, they only see certain very small portions of the entire, in the entirety of the space that's around us. And so we would literally have to have a telescope that was able to view uh, sort of a 360 degree view of all of the space that is around us in the, uh, sort of plane of the, of the ecliptic, uh, e- if it's even on the plane of the ecliptic, cause we also, it could be off of the plane of ecliptic. Um, and so that's basically the, the sort of plane where most all of the, um, most all of the planets sort of are in a kind of, uh, the same plane. Some of them are a little bit tilted off, like Pluto is off. But of course, Pluto is no longer a planet. Uh, That's another reason why. (laughs) Um, But anyways, that's a whole different thing. So anyways, a lot of people have said this is out there. It may be, it may not be. And so a new theory actually has a different suggestion. It suggests something a little less dramatic and a bit more sensible, (laughs) that the wobbles could be caused by the combined effects of a number of smaller Kuiper Belt or trans-Neptunian objects, uh, which are generally called TNOs. Uh, And so this explanation has been given a boost by new calculations from astrophysicists um, Antrinak Selenius. Safilian uh, of the University of Cambridge and Jihad Tuma, of the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. The Planet Nine hypothesis is a fascinating one, but if the hypothesized ninth planet exists, it has so far avoided detection, Safian said. Uh, and so her team wanted to see if there was a more mundane explanation. We thought rather than allowing for a ninth planet and then worry about its formation and unusual orbit, why not simply account for the gravity of small objects constituting a disk beyond the orbit of Neptune and see what it does for us. If you remove nine planet nine from the model and instead allow for lots of small objects scattered across a wide area, collective attractions between those objects could just as easily account for the eccentric orbits we see in some TNOs. Now, the problem is, is that there are still some uh, issues with this. For instance, it can't currently account for why all of these trans objects seem to be being pulled in a particular direction. It also requires a large amount of mass, uh, at least a couple of Earth's worth of mass, uh, whereas current estimates uh, suggest that the Kuiper belt has just 4 to 10% of Earth's mass. Now, Technically, this is a pretty big uh, problem for the hypothesis. However, models of the solar system actually suggest that the the mass out there in the Kuiper Belt should be much higher. And so much like with finding a mythical planet X, the problem is that it's hard to see things circling a star system from the interior of that star system. Well, we don't have direct observational evidence of the disk. Neither do we have it for planet nine, which is why we're investigating other possibilities. Sophilian said, it's also possible that both things could be true. There could be a massive disk and a ninth planet. With the discovery of each new TNO, we gather more evidence that might help explain their behavior. So... Again, the saga continues. Um, we know something's doing it, but what it is? Heck, if we know. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that is everything for tonight. Uh, we only talked about space for half the time, maybe even a little less. So that's pretty good. Um, it just seems like everything's happening in space these days. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. Uh, definitely do stay tuned tonight for civil politics because they have a special guest. Um, So they will be having Nicole LaChapelle, uh, who is the mayor of East Hampton, on the show tonight. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, And I will see you next week. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro, and thank you for listening.